Hey, here we are back at From Redemption to Consolation between Pesach and Tisha B'Av, our series on the events that go in the Jewish calendar from Pesach to Tisha B'Av that show us where we came from, where we're going to, and the best way we can get to the full redemption the sooner we need to. This week, we're going to talk about counting the Omer. Not yet about where the Omer gets us to. That we'll talk about next time when we get to the Shteh HaLechem and the significance of the sacrifice that the Jews brought on Shavuot. This time, I wanted to focus on a couple of unclear elements when it comes to the counting of the Omer, where it's not clear what we're doing in a couple of different ways. So last time we spoke about the debate or the dispute between the Beitusim, the heretics, and the traditional Jews about when the counting over the Omer started. And that affected our experience of Pesach, as we spoke about last time. This time, as we're counting, there's a couple of different debates that I want to raise within tradition, where there's a lack of clarity about certain things that I think are instructive in focusing our attention on what the count of the Omer does. So the first of those comes when the Gemara in Menachot on 66a discusses the counting of the Omer, and Abaye says that the obligation is to count days as well as weeks, whereas the Rabbanon of the House of Ravashi say also days and weeks, right? But Amemar says, I'm only going to count days and not weeks because nowadays the count is only Zecher Lamikdash. Zecher Lamikdash means that the count is, is in commemoration of the Beit HaMikdash. Now, if that were true, if we were to hold that way, as for example, Tosafot seems to, then we would be saying that the count of the Omer is about those sacrifices. In the time of the temple, when we offered an Omer sacrifice and counted seven weeks to the Shavuot, to the Shtehalechem, the two loaves of bread sacrifice, we were commanded by the Torah to mark that transition. Now, within that, we're going to see, while I can say that it's focused on the sacrifices, we're going to see that the Sefer HaChinuch still tries to put it into the framework of the giving of the Torah. So we'll come to that in a few minutes. But if we just take it at simple face value, we say, no, only in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, only in the time of the Temple, is this count biblically obligated, then it's a reaction to those experiences. And that will leave for next week when we talk about the Shtei and what its role is. And that'll help us sort of flesh out what we are doing. And if we did that correctly back then, and we could long for and hope for getting back to a time we're doing it biblically. In that framework, if we say that Chazal told us we should count in commemoration of that, so that we'd be saying to ourselves that one of, and I believe this is true, we'll see it other times in this series in other contexts, that one of the ways that we can get ourselves back to the full redemption that we want is by remembering what we used to have, longing for it, and enacting some of those practices in a rabbinic way and not the fullest way, because that will put us back in the frame of mind of wanting to live in that life. So that's one option. So the other option there is that it's not rabbinic, but that it's biblical. Now we'll get to, we'll get to the biblical of it in a second. So that would be if we think of this as rabbinic. If we think of the Omer counting as rabbinic, it's Zechel and Mikdash, it's commemorating the, the temple, and you'd have to figure it out. Within that, however, there's still more pieces to the puzzle, because Tosfot on the Gemara in Manachot has this sense that it's Zechel and Mikdash, that's rabbinic. And then Tosfot points out that there's two 
comments, two ideas shared by the Bahag, the Baal Halachot Dolot. The, uh, he's a ninth century author who's one of the earliest uh, books of halacha, became very authoritative. It was later largely superseded by other works, but it's still considered very authoritative. We worry about it. So he had these two ideas that are disputed, and yet we worry about them. One was, he says, although this one we don't follow, he, we sort of follow. He says if somebody doesn't count at night, they can count during the day. He seems to mean they can count during the day with a bracha. We famously only count during the day without a bracha. But the point is that he's saying it's the whole day that's relevant, whereas Rabbi Tam thought that it was only the night, because Rabbi Tam thinks the count, especially if you think the count is the Ikhla Mikdash, is commemorative to the Mikdash, it's the count from the Omer offering, and the Omer offering was cut the night before the second day of Pesach. So it's from the cutting, that's when the Omer process began. That would be Rabbi Tam's picture. So if we were to follow Rabbi Tam's picture, what we're saying is that the count every night of the Omer is only at night because it's commemorating the cutting and then the transition from the cutting of the Omer through to the offering of the Shteyalechem. That really focuses it on that transition. And that would be what we talk about next week. When the Bahag says that the day can be counted as well, so then that would seem to say that even if this is a Zeichel HaMikdash, even if this is a commemoration of what happened in the temple, nonetheless, it's the whole day that's included in it. The Bahag, on the other hand, and this they, they should go together because it's the Bahag, it's the same person saying it. But while he thought the days counted, he did think that if somebody missed a day, there's no meaning to counting again. So that's why we have the thing that if somebody misses a full day, they won't count again with a bracha because we worry about with a blessing because we worry about the Bahag's perspective. But if that's right, he seems to be saying, we'll see more on this uh, later in the shiur, later in the discussion, because I want to get to other things first, but it seems to be saying We'll do it now, actually. He seems to be saying that it's all one big unit. And that if you don't have that one big unit there, then it's not it's not a meaningful uh, discussion to have and then one is not performing the mitzvah. That's not our practice, but that's what he's saying. Now, the Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik, in, in the notes on, his, on, um, on sukkah, somebody points out that he suggested that when we mention it every night, it's that, not that we disagree with the Bahag. In fact, maybe we all agree with the Bahag that it's one large experience to be had. If you hold that way, if it's one large experience, so why wouldn't we count if we missed a piece of it? Because if you miss a piece of it, it's all gone, right? But the, the Rabbi Salavitch says the other perspective that says that you could still count it even if you missed a day, they would say it's one big experience, but we make a bracha on each of the examples of the experience. So if you have an experience that has 49 pieces to it, then the question is, is the bracha on on the whole of the mitzvah? And then you might even wonder why you make a bracha every day, but if you make a bracha every day, apparently you make a bracha on each piece. And if that's true, then the other perspective could say, well, each piece counts as a valid piece, even if we're not going to make it to the entire whole. Whereas the bag, since they have to be the entire whole. Along the same lines, the minchat chinuch, commentary on the sefer chinuch, raised the question of, what happens if somebody doesn't have the ability to count the whole thing? So a classic example, this actually became the kind of thing where for a while in my life, whenever you went to a bris, uh, you know, a circumcision during uh, the sphira or to a bar mitzvah during the sphira, you knew somebody was going to talk about whether this young man, the year that he became 13, was going to be able to start count, to count sphira that year. Because let's say somebody on the 15th day of the, of the count of the Omer becomes a Jewish adult. 
Well, that person for that year, this could be true for women too, although women aren't technically obligated to three at home there because it's a time-related uh, mitzvah. But could that person count? Because after all, there's no way in which that person can uh, can make the whole 49 days. So if we're going to agree with the Bahag or think that the Bahag was on the right track, that it's all one long experience, then you think to yourself, maybe you can't count. If we're going to allow, and that could be true for somebody, forget adulthood, not adulthood. Let's imagine something happened to somebody. They were, you know, in a coma and then with COVID and they wake up between Pesach and, and Sukkot and Shavuot. Can they count the Omer? So the, with a bracha, they can obviously count. Can they count with a bracha? That would be the same question. I mean, the of have two minds about that. He's not sure. And he gets to this question. Is our experience of counting the Omer one big experience, one unit, and maybe a unit with 49 parts to it, but one unit, and if we're not going to be able to achieve the whole unit, it lacks the halachic value to justify a bracha or not? And that's relevant not only to the technical question of the bracha, but that is relevant to what it is I think that I'm doing. Is it every day of the Omer I'm experiencing a day of its own in and of itself? It seems like we're leaning towards not. We're leaning towards saying that what's supposed to be happening here is we're supposed to be undergoing a process. And now we have to figure out what that process is that we're supposed to be undergoing. But that's where we seem to go. Now, the Mirka Chinuch raises another element of that question in that he says, well, imagine this kid who becomes Bar Mitzvah during the Omer, but he's a good kid. He was 12 years old. And he counted from the beginning. But when he counted from the beginning, that was as a minor. So when you count as a minor, does that count enough so that it can be considered a whole thing? That's a question about the transition from being a child to being an adult in halacha and how that affects it. But it taps into that same question, what's our over experience? So I'll come back to that in a minute. But that's just, these are just the elements of showing ourselves what we're struggling with in terms of the over. One issue is, is it biblical or not? And if it's not biblical, if it's not biblical, then it seems to be commemorating the Beit HaMikdash, and then it seems to be about those sacrifices. If it is biblical, then we have to wonder why. So the Rambam, when he presents it, he puts it in the laws of Tmidim Musafim, in the laws of daily sacrifices and additional sacrifices for holidays. In the end of the seventh chapter, he says, Mitzvat say lispor sheva shabbatot t'mimot, it's a biblical mitzvah. He says it in the, in the introduction as well. It's one of the mitzvot that he has in the introduction as well. It's a biblical mitzvah to count the Omer, the seven weeks, right, from the day of bringing the Omer. That's what he said. Be Yom Havat Omer. Now, I might have thought Yom Havat Omer is the day we actually bring it, but it seems like he means the day when we should have brought it. Remember that the Gemara talks about, because the Omer... Forgetting our topic for a second, not forgetting it, laying it aside for a second, the Omer has an important practical effect as well, in that by Torah law, and this seems to apply even when there's no Beit HaMikdash, by Torah law, grain that is planted after one Pesach does not become permitted for Jewish use until after the next Omer bringing day. So... If there's no Omer being brought, when did that happen? So that's a discussion. Some people think it's happened at noon. Some people think you need the whole day of the 16th, but it happens at some point. So for the Rambam, when he says Yom Havat Omer, theoretically it could mean from the actual practical bringing of the Omer, but it seems more likely that he means from the day when the Omer should have been brought. And we count from then the day the Omer should have been brought, because the Torah says, Spartim Lachem, and then he says the commandment is to count the days and the weeks, because we're going to count it that way. And then um, and then he says, in 
in Halacha 24, mitzvah zo al kol ish mi Yisrael v'chol makom v'chol zman. This is a mitzvah on every Jewish man in every place at every time. That seems to imply even when there's no Beit HaMikdash. Now, I would have read this Rambam and I think to myself, huh, apparently the Rambam thinks there's something else going on with the, with the count that's not about the sacrifices themselves. The Sefer HaChinuch, which was written in the 13th century, in the 1200s, is going to offer an idea about what that count would be about if it wasn't about the sacrifices. I'll come to that in one second. But commenting on the Rambam directly, no, I'm sorry, commenting on the Gemara, but about this Rambam, Rabbi Yitzchak Ze'ev Salavechik, who was the uncle of Rabbi Yosef B. Salavechik, who many people call the Rav, many American Jews call the Rav. This, the Rav, Rabbi Yosef B. Salavechik, his grandfather was Rabbi Chaim Salavechik, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, who's known as the sort of uh, the founder of the Brisk style of learning. He had a son, Rav Moshe, who became the Rav's father, Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik's father. But then he had another son named Rav Yitzchak Zeev Salavechik, who became the rabbi in Brisk and moved to Jerusalem and became the sort of head of that side of the family. So he's known as either Revelville or the Grizz. In his commentaries on Minachot, he points to our rabbi and he says this mitzvah is Minatora even today. And then he quotes his father and says, I don't understand. He says, his father who says, it's because you think because the Omer wasn't actually brought, the mitzvah is going to go away, that that should be right. So he says it must be that it's not true, that in some way the Omer is still relevant. So how would the Omer still be relevant, says Rav Chaim? He says, well, because for the Rambam, theoretically, while you can't actually bring the Omer to we don't actually bring the Omer, but theoretically we could. And why theoretically we could? Because the Rambam happens to hold people know this is like a well-known passage in the Rambam, the Rambam is the whole that once the Beit HaMikdash was sanctified, it never lost that sanctity. There's whole discussions about the land of Israel itself. Some opinions hold the land of Israel. So we seem to be clear that the first time the Jewish people conquered the land of Israel, it did not retain that sanctity forever. It always retained what's called the shame Eretz Israel, the name of being the land of Israel, but not the Kedushan Eretz Israel. In the second temple, most opinions, I think, think that it, that it became, that it got a kitshat of a kitshat lavo, became sanctified forever. And that affects, for example, things like Shemitah and Truma and what's rabbinic and what's not, all sorts of discussions. But when it comes to Beit HaMikdash, the Ram thought it always was sanctified. It stayed sanctified forever and it has that sanctity today. So Reb Chaim seems to have read this Rambam to mean that since the Beit HaMikdash is fully sanctified still, the fact that technically we didn't offer the Omer this year is a technical detail. And that that's why the count is still biblical. And that reading of the Rambam, and I'm going to offer another one in a second, but that reading of the Rambam would say, and that reading of the Rambam, I will say, is supported by the fact that the Rambam placed these laws in Tzmidim Musafim, although it's because he's connecting it to the Omer. But in that reading then, it's still true, even according to the Rambam, even according to this view, that it's right, that it's biblical, it's still true that it's connected to the sacrifices. So for all those perspectives, we want to understand what we're doing during this period, we have to be talking about what do these sacrifices mean? What does it mean to go from the Omer sacrifice, which is a barley sacrifice, and permits us to eat the new grain, to the Shtei HaLechem, 
to the two loaves that we'll talk about in next week's podcast, God willing, and to those two lead breads. What is that, the process of going through and talking about it in those terms? Possibility. I would just say, though, if we look at the Sefer HaChinuch, Sefer HaChinuch gives us, I'm sorry, I, before I get to Sefer HaChinuch, a later commentator, the Sforno, seems to put it also in that purely agricultural sense, because he writes, Ki me'az matchil ketzir va'omer, u'svirat ha'shavu'ok she'hein me'inyan chagakatzir, from the time when we cut the omer, meaning we're beginning to harvest things, we cut the barley for the omer, and we count the weeks from then till the chagakatzir, till shavu'ok, right? So we're giving thanks with the omer for the fact that until now, the planting season has gone as well as it's gone. And then when we get to Shavuot, we're going to give thanks for that the cutting season is going well. So it's all about the Thanksgiving. We're counting from one element of the Thanksgiving to the other, meaning that you got the planting season. And then as the harvest season proceeds, we start thanking God for the harvest season. So that would be the Omer count. That's what he says. The Omer is Hoda'a al Ha'aviv. The Omer offering is thanks for the planting. Right? And the Omer sacrifices a prayer that the rest should go well. And then we count as we're going forward within our early harvest in the hopes that it's all going well. So in that way of reading the Sforno, when he's again putting it into the agriculture. So we have lots and lots of opinions that are suggesting that the counting of the Omer is about the agricultural experience of moving from a planted a planted produce, planted uh, yield, and we're moving from there to actually harvesting it. And as we're doing so, we are thanking, praying, hoping for God to treat us well. Were I to stop there, and then it could either be rabbinic or it could be biblical, as we've spoken about. If we stop there, and we're not going to, but if we stop there, then I think the Omer transition is about remembering that the elements of our lives that seem fairly mundane, that seem fairly guided by nature, as it were, or by just the regular rhythms of life, after all, there's a planting and harvesting every single year, then it's a reminder that we're supposed to focus it and focus our experience of it on God and on God's role in it. To me, that would already be a huge step towards redemption. And therefore, to me, just that experience of keeping the Omer in mind as we count it and reminding ourselves just of the bare basic issue that we're moving from, you know, our celebration of the very beginning of the harvest and the beginning of, of seeing our plants planted and our grains sprouting, and we're moving to the end stage of it, and then we're counting it all along the way to make sure we're aware of it at all times. I think that would be a lesson already, I meaning it would be like a Dayenu lesson. That would already be enough of a lesson for us to learn from and to grow from and if we were able to internalize it and, and and benefit from it we would be well on the way to coming closer to our redemption not so simple at all but i think that would be a step of it but i think the same rachinov gives another step because remember again the rambam thought it was the all right now the salvation put it into the context of agriculture anyway and they said that the answer is that even though there's not technically Physically, an Omer offering, there's a potential Omer offering. Since there's a potential Omer offering, that's what we got. Perfectly welcome to say that. But the Sefer HaChinuch says, Mishor Sheha Mitzvah. Remember, the Sefer HaChinuch was written in the mid to late 1200s. It's written by somebody we're not sure who it is. 
for a long time, Jews traditionally thought it was by Rabbi Aaron Halevi, who was the Ra'ah, was an important rabbi, a contemporary of the Rajabah. I think more recent scholars think it couldn't have been, and and and, and Rishonim too. I think the 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 the, the uh, Mossad Yerushalayim, the, Mossad Yerushalayim, the Whoever put out those black Minchatinov's volumes did a big introduction there where that very traditional person says it's probably not the Ra'ah himself who wrote it. So they suggest that maybe it's Rabbi Pinchas Alevi, the brother of the Ra'ah. He writes the book and he presents the book as if he's writing it on behalf of his son and other contemporaries of his weren't the biggest Talmidei Chacham and Torah scholars. And he wants them to have a relatively simple and accessible way to understand the mitzvahs of the Torah, which I think is, I'm not the first one to say this, but I think it's a very, very important work. I think too few people study it regularly because especially for students who just aren't yet engaged in, and this could be kids, adults, whoever it is, but who aren't yet ready to engage in the difficulties of the shakla vitari of the Gemara, this is a really, really excellent way to get a sense of what Hashem wants from us in the Torah. Part of his presentation is he gives a basic description of the mitzvah, then he gives a reason for the mitzvah, and then he gives some of the laws of the mitzvah. So when he gets to the reason for this mitzvah here, he says, Al-Tzad Hapshat. Right? He says, he's going to give us a reason that's based on the simple reading of life, because he already lives in a world where mystical, Kabbalistic ideas are around. The Ramban is a teacher of his. He knows the Ramban's ideas, but he's not here to present them. So he's not here. So, for example, I was just recently somewhere where somebody spoke about that particular day of the Omer and which sphere, which Kabbalistic circle of God's influence on the world was being affected because there are seven spherot that we make use of and there are seven days in a week. So you put them all, you know, you have the Yisod, Shabbat Tiferet, and the Tiferet, Shabbat Malchut, and the this and the that. And that reading of it is making a claim as well. And that's not an agricultural claim at all. That reading is saying that the transition of the Omer is transition through the different versions of how God impacts the world. It's not my topic today at all. But that would be even more so about saying, in the Kabbalistic world, it would be saying that one of the things we're supposed to remember is that we as people, when we invoke and involve ourselves in the metaphysics of the world, we have that kind of an impact. If you want to think that way, then there's a whole world of tradition to look into and figure out and think of it those ways. That's not our topic here, nor is that the Sefer Kinuk's topic. But that would be another way to say to yourself, if I want to bring the Geula, if I want to bring the redemption, if I want to learn the lessons of Pesach and then the Omer, one of them would be to make clear that when Jews act, when people act in the world, they have an impact not only on the world, but on the metaphysics of the world. The Sefer HaChinuch is saying something else. He's saying, by the plain sense, the Jewish people are about Torah. The base of the Jewish people is Torah. And Torah is the reason why heaven and earth was created. That's the verse in Yirmiyahu that says, were it not for my covenant of Torah, I wouldn't have kept the world going. And that's the essential reason the Jews were redeemed, as God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you'll know that you were fully redeemed when you come back to Har Sinai and you serve God. So the Chirachinuch is saying it's all about Torah, that's the Jewish people's existence about Torah, and we were redeemed to get Torah, and, and, and that's why we have our place in the world, and that's how we get the good in the world, more than the freedom from slavery. It's all about the Torah. And therefore, he says, we were commanded to count from the day after we left Egypt, the day after the Pesach, Pesach day we left Egypt, the next day we start counting. And we're counting to Shavuot, to the giving of the Torah. Now, we're counting Shavuot, to giving of the Torah, because that's really the goal of it, he's saying. He's saying not to think. Now, 
I'll try to tie this together next week when I try to show that maybe the two of those are more related, the sacrifices and the exodus are more related than we think. But the Sefer Achino is putting Shavuot and the Count of the Omer firmly into the side of Torah rather than agriculture. Certainly, if you do that, then you can see why it would be biblical today. Because the idea of transition from freedom to Torah is clear and, and understandable, is applicable to every year, having to do with, with, with whether there was an actual sacrifice or not. So that's the Sefer Achino that says, that's what he thinks the point of counting the Omer is to show our excitement show A, our awareness, and B, our excitement that the physical freedom isn't what's valuable. It's the spiritual uh, reception of the Torah that's valuable. And then he says, and we don't count, in theory, I would have then counted down. We count the Shavuot. He says, we don't want to start with such a big number and make it so daunting that we're so far away. So we count up, but we're counting towards the real goal. You take that Sefer you know, to be... Uh, to be functional and to be true, then the Omer count is about something almost completely different. Of course, he's ignoring the agricultural element of it. We'll pick that up again next time, God willing. But that's another option for how the count could be biblical and what it could be teaching us to do. I just want to briefly point out that Revel Yoshiv, I don't usually come across his ideas, but I happen to come across on a Masechet Shabbat. He points out there's a whole discussion about when the Torah was actually given, based upon our experience of the laws of Midah, of when and how long a husband and wife need to separate, the Gemara connects the discussion there with the giving of the Torah, because Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jews to separate from their families, from their wives, the men and women to separate for, he says, three days. And there's a debate in the Gemara about how long those three days are. Our practice in halacha of couples, and couples when they're allowed to be together and not together, would seem to say that the Torah was given on the 7th of Sivan as the Magen of Ram pointed out hundreds of years ago. So there's lots of answers to that question, but it seems to say that. So Rabbi Yosef says, it's true that we don't know for sure the Torah was given on the 6th of Sivan. There's a reason they might be given on the 7th. And he also points out that in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, the time of the Temple, Shavuot, the holiday of Shavuot, is defined in the Torah as being a function of seven weeks from the Omer. Well, seven weeks from the Omer isn't always the 6th of Sivan. It's always the 6th of Sivan in our fixed calendar. Because in our fixed calendar, the month of Nisan has 30 days. And in our fixed calendar, the month of Iyar always has 29 days. But theoretically, when we're doing it by witnesses, they could be both months can be 29 days, or both months can be 30 days. So Shavuot can really happen on the 5th of Sivan, or the 6th of Sivan, or the 7th of Sivan. Which means that the link between the agricultural element of the holiday in Torah isn't at, at the giving of the Torah isn't as uh, absolutely linked as we, as we thought it would be. And therefore, even were it to be true that the Gemara and Shabbos seems to imply that it was given on the seventh, that won't affect our calculus. So he's saying, and this is a topic I want to pick up more fully next time, but he's saying that the link between the two isn't as obvious as we thought it would be, and it may not be as ironclad as we would want it to be. So we end up with a bunch of questions about the count of the Omer. One question is, are we doing 49 completely separate acts? If we thought we could make a bracha, even on days that we missed, as most Rishonim did, it seems like we're doing 49 separate acts. Of course, Rabbi Soloveitchik would tell you, no, maybe not. Maybe it's a linked set of acts, but just they each deserve a bracha of their own because they're each an act of their own. So that's one question. Is it one big unit? Is that one big unit completely dependent on when the sacrifice was cut, as Rabbeinu Tam had said, and therefore really I can't count from the day because counting the day means nothing, or no, or is it I'm commemorating something, but I have the whole day commemorated, as the Bahag said. 
And then if I miss a day, is it too much one unit that if I miss a day, I can't count again, or I can continue counting, right? So in all of that, we have one question about the count itself, and that was a question about a child who becomes an adult during that time, right? Are this, is this one count, or is it many counts? And is the count linked really to the sacrifices, or is the count linked to, is it linked to the sacrifices, or is it linked to the, to something else, like the giving of the Torah? But in all of this, and the piece that I wanted us to think here, is in all of this, what we're seeing is that the Torah says, you go out of Egypt, or you begin your harvest, there's a process to undergo. And the better, I'm suggesting here, that the better we undergo that process, it's an annual process, but it's an annual process that's clearly about moving from stage A to stage B, and next time we'll define those two stages more fully than I've done until now, but it's the idea of moving from stage A to stage B, and I, I hope it would be true for each of us if, it, if we really move and grow from stage A to stage B every year, that I think, in fact, would be a way in which we could bring the redemption closer because we would be, in fact, growing in the way that we're supposed to. So it's another example. We're going to pick up many, many of these examples, another example of an area where if we give it fuller attention than we have until now, that we can perhaps not only go from Pesach to Tisha B'Av on the calendar, but go from Pesach to Tisha B'Av and to a step beyond to the consolation of the restoration, the full restoration of, uh, of the Jewish people and of, the, of Yerushalayim and Beit HaMikdash by each of us coming to understand that we need to progress. It's not just we have to do the physical act of counting. We need to progress. We need to progress perhaps in our agricultural appreciation of God, perhaps in our readiness for Torah, our excitement about Torah, and our embrace of the study of Torah and the application of Torah in our lives, or if you want to be capitalist, of things beyond that. But that's where we are for now. We're in the middle of this understanding of the counting of the Omer, what the counting of the Omer does for us, and God willing, next week, we'll bring it all together into what it can teach us and the ways we can grow in those ways. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of From Pesach Shabbat, From Redemption to Consolation. Be well.